Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The story in the equity market front and center is Twitter right now, down 13% in the pre-market with a Facebook-style disappointment. Joining me to discuss is Paul Sweeney, Bloomberg Intelligence Director of North American Research. Paul, what went wrong? Uh, users, uh, monthly uh, av- active users uh, declined in the quarter, and the company is talking about uh, more declines uh, in the third quarter. And, you know, they're they're chalking it up to they're trying to clean up uh, the platform of, uh, you know, some bad accounts, some fake accounts, some accounts that are just troublemakers. And uh, so, this, you know, the, the, the monthly active users has been a, a metric that investors focus on for um, uh, Twitter. You know, it's 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 kind of struggled to, to gain scale when you when you compare it to Facebook with a couple of billion users. And um, and so I think uh, people are concerned that, gee, if this if the company's not growing its user base, then it's going to become less attractive to advertisers, and, and that's kind of the concern going forward. So, um, you know, the monthly active users was disappointing here. I'm trying to understand the bullish view on this stock this morning. Our monthly active users stalled. They stalled because they're cleaning up the platform. They reset revenue expectations. Is there a good story out there associated with this over the long term, Paul? Well, the good story is that you know there are 335 million users roughly, and they are a very active, passionate users. Um, there's some uh, influencers there, if if you will, uh, including uh, Donald Trump. Uh, so you know, if advertisers want to reach a you know a audience of over 300 million, um, a passionate audience uh, tends to be younger demos. Uh, then this is a good audience. Uh, the problem, however, in digital media is it's it it seems to be. If you have less than a billion users, you're just not relevant. So, uh, you know, the good news for Facebook is they have four platforms with Facebook and Messenger and WhatsApp and Instagram, all north of a billion users. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Google and, and and even Amazon, uh, you know, have, have that kind of scale. But anything sub a billion users tends to yeah. be deemed not really an effective advertising buy for, for advertisers. Well, to your point, Paul, you've got Facebook with four franchises with a billion users plus and Twitter struggling to get past the 500 million mark. There is a question mark about the whole sector, the whole space today in social media. I noticed Facebook paired its gains after these Twitter results came out. Are we finding out there's just limitations to growth in terms of social media? You know, it's... um. It probably, I mean, there's certainly from a user perspective, you know, there's some, some close to maturization in some of the more mature markets, such as the North American, Western Europe, but there's, mm-hmm. a, you know, a lot of growth uh, in, in other parts of the world. But what we're seeing is I still think the long-term uh, bull case for digital advertising is still very much intact in because we see across all media, including Twitter today, their yeah. daily active users were actually up 11%. So people are spending more and more time on in the internet, yeah. including social media, and the advertisers are, fo- are are following. Can I put a personal note on this? I mean, I'm looking here at the bold letters of the fabulous Bloomberg Top Live blog on Twitter. I, folks, I can't say enough about this. If you have a terminal, these Top Live streams are unreal. And they say, we have made, ref- wait, Twitter says reflecting impact from decisions we have made to prioritize the health of the platform, I went down over 2,000 followers, you know, in my puny world, <laughs> not, not Donald Trump's world, but I went down 
2,000 followers one day is they cleaned up the health of their platform. I would suggest the, the, the MAU miss has a lot to do with them getting these idiot bots and computer stuff off. Uh, I think you're, pro- you're probably right. And I think, um, you know, the, the bullish call here is this is for the, the long-term benefit of the platform yeah. and advertisers will ultimately reward I mean, this platform down the road. Um, so, and I think, you know, it, I think what investors are saying is, gee, where, 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 where's the end of this? We, we saw it here in the second quarter. Well, where they, they've kind of talked about it in the third quarter. So again, I think concerns for, for Twitter have been, you know, you know, scale it's one of scale will they ever right. have scale to be relevant to advertisers and anytime you you talk about reducing the the amount of users on there i think yeah. that just heightens the, the concern for i mean john you've got a follower size like ariana grande did you lose like 70 or eighty thousand followers actually, you know what i less i lost nothing <laughs> <laughs> seriously i lost nothing i don't know i lost seriously I, I i was like 107 108 and all of a sudden boom i'm at 105 just one day help us have you seen this before Facebook, hysteria, Amazon, OMG, phenomenal. Twitter, hysteria. What's next? You know, I think the, uh, you know, what, what we're seeing out there in, in the tech world is very high valuations. Um, the stocks yeah. have been just phenomenal. You just think about this. Was well, it like the, March the 01? Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, although that was a good year for me, but, um, I think the, uh, you know, the FANG stocks and, and tech stocks in general, you know, they have been one of the uh, very few consistent areas of growth that investors could feel confident about. And, and, and to the extent that uh, there's any miss there, whether it's, uh, yeah. you know, even, a, a, you know, on users or on revenue or on EPS, the stocks get, get hit hard. Paul, let's talk about the A and FANG, um, for most people, Amazon. Oh, Amazon did this really interesting thing yesterday where they said, don't look there, look over here. Um, we've been looking at revenue and growth there for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden they said, look, we can make big profits. How did they disappoint on revenue but beat on profits? You know, it's it's a interesting story. You're right. For for years and years and years, the, the company has done a wonderful job of conditioning its shareholder base to say, don't worry about profits. Just focus on the top line growth because we're playing this long game for the growth of uh, e-commerce and we are the play in e-commerce globally. Um, but every once in a while, they will dial down their expenses in terms of opening up new fulfillment centers and distribution centers and R&D and so on and so forth and all the crazy things they, they invest in, whether it's groceries or whatever. They will dial that back a little bit and then the EPS will just explode and, and, and really surprise people. And that's what happened again yesterday. So, you know, the, the, the drivers for the improved profitability of uh, Amazon today versus just even two years ago are really two areas. One is the the cloud business, the Amazon Web Services business. That has operating margins in the mid-30% range versus low single digits for the core Amazon business. Uh, and then the second thing is advertising. You know, they their advertising was up over 100% last quarter. Uh, we think advertising will be an $8 billion business for them in yeah. 2018 versus $3 billion last year. That's a profitable business. So they are, in fact, growing businesses that are profitable. Uh, so this is a business that whether investors want it or not are going to show increased profitability. So um, the narrative is changing a little bit here on, on Amazon. Paul Swinney, it's great to have you with us. John, you and I are really on the same page. On Friday is a time to collect your thoughts, particularly in the summer, and drive forward to weekend thinking and getting to Monday. We have a guest who can jumpstart that. Yes, yeah, Steve Eisman. It's always great to catch up with Steve, of course. Famed for the big short, Eisman Group's Newberger Berman, Senior Portfolio Manager. Steve, it's great to catch up with you. A couple of shorts that you mentioned on TV a little bit earlier, but for the benefit of our listeners, let's begin with Tesla. 
it's kind of one of those stocks, one of those stories that just separates the longs, which are sort of called fans, and the shorts, which are called the haters. Um, you're sort of in the latter category right now. Walk me through it. I'm not a hater. I'm a lover. That's a joke. Uh, <laughs> um, look, I, people who love Tesla like to point, they like, like to say he's a genius. And you know, from my experience over the years, there are a lot of smart people in this world. Um, but just because you're smart doesn't mean you execute well. And so far, he's not executing well. Um, he's building a whole bunch of cars in a tent. He's negative cash flow. He's at war with his safety regulator after the um, the unfortunate uh, crash for his autonomous uh, driving car, um, and he's and he's lost a tremendous number of executives over the last two years. Those are all negative signs. Now maybe he can pull it out, but as of now, it seems to me all the fundamentals are pointing negatively. And it's some really peculiar behavior elsewhere. Do you factor that in when you I have do- to create a short thesis, or is that separate to, to what you're walking us through at the moment? Um, I don't. I factor some of that in. I factor more in that after the autonomous driving accident, he announced two weeks later that he was no longer cooperating with the National Safety Board. I thought that was a very poor decision. The other stuff uh, I listen to, but I don't pay that much attention to. Let's talk about the execution of this short. How difficult is it to execute? How expensive is it? Just walk us through the it's sort not of an the fundamentals. It's of not an expensive short. Are you, it's a very liquid stock. You know, you you could put the position on and <laughs> before you go out and get a cup of coffee and come back. So it's the easiest thing in the world to either buy Tesla or short it. Elon Musk talks about um, stormy weather in Shortsville quite often. Is there a risk that you do get that surprise to the upside, and all of a sudden the position gets wiped out? Steve, is that something you account for? That's, of course. I mean, you have to size it appropriately. It's a very, very volatile stock, so it's not the biggest short in my portfolio. Um, but, you know, I'm, I, I think the stock could go down about 30%. 30%? Yeah. Is there a bigger short out there for you then? If it's not the biggest short in your portfolio. Well, it's, it's not the biggest short because of the volatility. Interesting. Volatility is, is wild. And the stock tends to move on nonsense. So, you know, just for, I like to sleep at night. So I've sized it in a way where I, I, it's, sleep is still possible. Could you explain what you mean by that? That's a word I use when I lecture and people go, what? What do you mean when you say sized? I'm looking at it, it's called portfolio sizing, but what do you mean when you say sized? Well, first of all, I, I, my philosophy of investing generally longs and shorts is that no position should be so large that your career is at risk. So, you know, as I said on the TV, you know, my biggest long position is four percent, a little over four yeah, percent, yeah. and my biggest short position is about three and a half percent. My smallest short position is about one and a half percent position. You know, Tesla is is sized more towards the the, the, the smaller end of the scale, um, not because I don't think there's a lot, there isn't a lot of downside. I do think potentially there's a lot of downside, but it tends to be an extremely volatile stock. And what tends to happen with stocks like that is your day gets consumed completely by that one stock. And when your day is consumed by one stock, you can't think about the rest of your portfolio. And so I try to avoid situations like that. So just to be clear here, the team here at Bloomberg has reached out to Tesla for comment. Um, Representatives for for Tesla have not immediately returned a call for comment on this uh, position of yours, Steve. Is it about the space 
that Tesla is operating in, or is it about Tesla? Do you think there could be winners in this space? Because quite clearly, Elon Musk is having a very difficult time rolling this out in mass production. Well, look, I th I think when you look at the um, the car space, the real future is going to be <clears throat> autonomous driving. You know, he's gotten big in the electric car space, but I really think that we're leapfrogging now towards autonomous driving. And the two largest players in autonomous driving are Google and GM. And as far as I can tell, um, Tesla is a very distant party in, in, in that space. Your other short that you mentioned to us, and there were longs, including your enthusiasm for Mr. Bezos and Amazon, was Zillow, which is a whole different beast. It's, again, a smaller, single story, mm -hmm. if you would. How do you handle a given short like a Zillow, Z, uh, versus something with notoriety like a Tesla? Well, Zillow is a larger short. Um, and the vector's up. I mean, you're really going against a no, trend. No, I'm going against you? a trend. I'm going against a trend in the sense that Zillow is considered to be what's called a platform. And the platform space is the hottest space in the internet. So that I have going against me. Um, but not all platforms are created equal. And this is a platform where I think the addressable market is much smaller than the company is saying. The growth rate of the company has slowed in its basic business enormously over the last year or so. And then the thing that really t tilted me over the edge with respect to Zillow was when they announced earlier this year that they were entering a new business, which was they were going to use their own capital to buy houses and flip them. Yeah. And, you know, you can have arguments about how good or bad the basic business is, but it's definitely a cash flow positive business that doesn't require a lot of capital. They're now entering into a low margin yeah. cyclical business where if we go into recession, that business will do particularly badly. Steve Eisman, it's been great to get your thoughts this morning. Thank you very much. Eisman Group, Newberger Berman, Senior Portfolio Manager. Why don't you bring in Mr. Rupke here as we see the, the yield come in a solid basis point, 2.96%. Uh, Chris Rupke joining us now, Chief Financial Economist at MUFG uh, Union Bank. Your thoughts, your early thoughts, Chris? Yeah, it looks like a pretty terrific number, as they say. It had a four handle. Uh, I was surprised by the strength of consumer spending because it didn't look like car and light truck sales were all that strong. I guess we were 17 point. 4 million annual rate in June. Um, exports look like they're pretty strong. I, I, I still think you can say that uh, you can make the case that this is the high water mark for growth here, certainly this year, and that everything clicked this quarter. Um, and we'll see what happens in the future. I think some of the trade uncertainty is still a problem, even with the agreement with the European Union. Well, Chris, let's unpack that first of all. As Tom says, going beneath the headline number, you've picked up on that trade story. How much of a contribution did we get from a build-up ahead of tariffs being introduced that will likely not be in the number in the back half? Uh, just trying to get my Bloomberg screen going here. Well, Better get it going. Net export, well, exports added 1.1 percentage point, and the drag from imports was minimal. So it does look like uh, certainly, uh, you know, they 
people ex- we exported more to the rest of the world to get ahead of some of these yeah. trade tariff uncertainty. Chris Repke, so that's got, one percentage point. Yep. I've got a first look of seven point four percent current GDP. That's a wow statistic. I've got to search here to figure out what that gets us gets back to. Is seven point four percent boom nominal GDP a healthy condition? Well, yeah, I mean, you can do the same thing by saying, uh, you know, for some reason, inventories was a huge drag. I mean, first off, we revised the data back to 1929. Um, I wasn't there, so we'll have to study this a little more. But I was surprised that inventories uh, subtracted one percentage point. So even though we missed at 4.1%, it was actually 5.1%, which also, you know, if we take out inventories, which are just, you know, they go back and forth every quarter. Uh, so the underlying potential rate real growth is like 5.1%. It really, yeah, the economy is quite strong this and, quarter. And so, Farrell, I, mean, I think the Trump administration has a reason to crow about it. I don't know if they'll be crowing quite the same way. No, but, but still, year, real but, final sales, John Farrell, were 5.1%. Yeah. And that's a, that's a round statistic that... Uh, is just absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. It's another way to overwhelmingly it. the consensus view now is this: this is as good as it gets. Chris, tell me why this can't be self-fulfilling. Why these kind of numbers can't inspire confidence in the economy and drive things forward even more. Well, I mean, it comes down to the battle between the Trump administration. Remember the uh, famous uh, U.S. Treasury one-page economic growth forecast that came out with to uh, justify the tax cuts. You know, the administration's looking for 3% growth starting in 2020, forever, as far as the eye can see. But the economics profession, uh, as shown by Fed official forecasts, have GDP being 2% in 2020. So the tax cuts that economists see is a, a one-year phenomenon and trailing out in 2019. So the economics world say has 2% growth starting 2020. Administration say is three. So, I mean, there's quite a difference. And the reason between the two is the the uh, economists have come down on the idea of demographics are very big. They ignored it for years. Now they think the graying of society, uh, low birth rate, that's going to doom economic growth or at least keep it down at low right. 2% range. 20 seconds, Chris Rupke. What's your run rate forward for U.S. GDP? Uh, I think uh, we're going to get close to 3%, not quite in the next couple of years. I have it like 2.8, 2.9. Uh, I'm not quite as uh, bearish as some of the Fed official forecasts, yeah. but not quite as uh, as blue skies for the economy. I don't I don't see the yeah. administration forecast as being that good either. Uh, thanks so much, Chris Rupke. Greatly appreciate it. And for the record, I would note that Mr. Rupke has been an optimist on the American economy. Margie Patel looks at the same data we look at uh, in high yield, in bonds, in dividend paying, in dividend growing equities at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Margie, I happen to be looking at contribution to GDP. Exports is jaw-dropping. Goods, boom, services, not bad. But the export chart coming off of 2015 and particularly 
coming off the election is extraordinary. You are very optimistic on the markets. Is it because we're an export juggernaut? <laughs> uh, well, really, it's everything, everything. U.S. business is extremely productive, globally competitive. Uh, global growth is at least okay to picking up a little bit. So uh, conditions here are great. Um, our manufacturers in particular have lowered their costs. They have such a flexible cost structure. They can compete with anybody, even if the dollar moves up, which, of course, it has. I mean, the dollar dynamics here are tangible. Is a kind of report today in the interior data of the report enough to shift the bond market price down, yield higher? Not as long as you have inflation so well behaved and not as long as the um, Treasury market is still has a competitive yield compared to yields of other developed countries. It's incredible that our yields are so much higher than, say, uh, your yields in Europe. So I think that for a safe haven for investors to get something like a three-ish percent is going to keep a lid on how fast rates can go up, assuming mm. inflation stays where it is. Have you changed your portfolio a lot in the last 90 days? I mean, the, the toxic, not toxic, the cocktail rather of booming economic growth, 4.1 percent with a real final sales folks nicely above 5 percent. I mean, does, does that make you change your portfolio or have you been, you know, vacationing in Iceland? No, I've been thinking for a long time that the market is set up underestimating um, how strong and how sustainable the growth is. And I think that a lot of market players still are geared as if tomorrow is going to be 2008 again and the market's yeah. going to drop 15, 20%. Where do you find... And they're wrong on rates too. They're not going to go up that fast. Okay. They're on rates as well, which means price stability. Yes. But what does it mean for dividend growth and where can you find intelligent dividend growth backed by free cash flow? I think in just about all sectors, except for those that are under structural um, pressure because of global forces, um, I think retailing is a sector that is continuing to suffer because of the Internet trend. And I think really you look at a sector like autos, yes, people have more money, they're buying more cars, but uh, too much global competition, too much right. overcapacity. And we have a headline out now, Margie Patel to speak on the American economy at 8.51 <laughs> a.m. and just behind that Bloomberg headline, President Trump will speak to the nation 9.30 a.m. this morning, uh, 9.30 uh, New York time on the U.S. economy. Pim Fox, why don't you jump in here as we speak with Margie Patel, uh, Wells Fargo. Pim, I mean, this is this is this is an economy, Pim, from years in my childhood. Well, uh, well. Uh, we won't <laughs> we won't go there. No, but just uh, this is yeah. these are big numbers. Th these are big numbers. And Marky, um, one point to, to you is how much do you believe the, uh, investors, smart investors, are willing to pay for every dollar of earnings now? Do you think that's changing? I I think they should be willing to pay a bit more. Um, if you say that, you know, going forward, P.E. is roughly 17-ish, I see no reason why they can't go up a turn or two. You know, the argument that, well, as rates go up, P.E. gets compressed. Again, I'm skeptical um, of the, uh, the naysayers on how well the economy is going to do, how well the equity market is going to do. Is that because they're going to have to be competitive in terms of trying to actually uh, purchase shares in companies? In other words, why would they be willing to pay more? 
because you can see this cycle is different because it really doesn't look cyclical. It looks more secular. Um, just as Milton Friedman said, if you have a passive monetary authority, you will, can allow for more sustainable growth. And we're finally seeing once again, he's being true. And uh, and I think that's it. And you're not going to see the kind of uh, inflation that would really cram down equity values or, um, or put uh, financial pressure on sectors. Financial sector. Do you believe that that is going to be one industry group that's going to perform? I'm uh, extremely lukewarm on the financial sector. Uh, again, because unless you have a boom and bust lending cycle, I just do not see where the growth is coming from. And this whole recovery has not been driven by <clears throat> increased leverage. So well, um, I'm, I have very minimal exposure. That's really interesting uh, in, in the sense of how you get to that decision. You're talking about lower rates than people expect. You're talking about a better economy. Those 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 bring on this ambiguity within banks. And that's distilled through the yield curve. Is it just they can't make net margin? They don't have the spread between long and short? Well, exactly. That was a big case for. I think all the macro stories are, are pretty pretty wobbly. But just as far as what sector is going to borrow, it doesn't look like it's housing. It doesn't look like it's consumers. Yeah. It doesn't look like it's business. So who's left? I don't see much. Yeah. Margie, one more question. I want to go to Pim Fox on this uh, in a moment. I, if you look at the first quarter corporate profits, it's amazing the tax effect, the legislation effect. Can you say that this quarter was based off? Mr. Trump's tax reform legislation? Uh, I think we're only beginning to see the positive benefits of that on the corporate side and then flowing ultimately over into uh, consumers. So I think this has very, very yeah. long legs. We're just at the beginning of it. Margie Patel, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with her optimism on the American economy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.